So every Friday at 11 o'clock, something happens. Do you know what happens every Friday at 11? It's not the price is right. What happens at Friday at 11? Sirens, tornado sirens. The, The spring season and the coming storms connected to the Midwest portend potential danger, and so therefore these sirens fire up every day at 11. They're a a good reminder that at any moment the weather in Indiana can change, and we just need to be aware that there are certain things that we need to do if we were to hear those sirens. Those sirens are important because of what they mean, which is why the people in Dallas, Texas, in April of last year were so incredibly annoyed and why authorities were actually angry. Because at 18 minutes before midnight, All 156 tornado sirens in the greater Dallas metro area, 1.3 million people had to endure the tornado sirens that went off for an hour and a half without stopping. What happened is someone had hacked into the system and the prank turned all of the sirens on. Well, it wasn't funny. In fact, some people thought they were under attack. Some folks thought a nuclear war was happening. Social media suggested that there was a zombie apocalypse that was happening. So the authorities began looking for the people. It was actually an inside job who had hacked into the system and had created this rather annoying situation. See, weeks earlier, someone else had hacked into the traffic signs as people were going to work. Somewhat funny, it said, work's closed, go home. So, but if you hack into the system for the tornado sirens, that's a whole different matter because if people can't trust what the tornado sirens mean, then they completely lose their effectiveness. In order for people to be warned and for them to be forearmed, they they have to equate, here's what we hear and here's what this means. I want to suggest to you that the book of 1 Peter is a lot like a tornado siren. It's what we've heard and what Peter is trying to help us to know is what it means. To hear that suffering and hardship is a part of what it means to be a follower of Jesus and then Here's what it actually means. So this is the second to last week as we're studying this wonderful book. The aim of our study has been to help us think a little differently about the world in which we live. And this book has been really helpful. I I hope that, that this book will become something that you come back to time and time again because there's some important things that we've learned. We've learned about our identity in Christ. We've learned about our future hope that we have in an inheritance that's kept for us. We've learned about how to deal with opponents. We've learned how to think about government and how to think about employers and how to think about those who treat us unfairly. We've also learned that when a woman lives in a really hard marriage to an ungodly man, that there's a certain way that she can live in that marriage as an exile. So, When the dark clouds of our exile begin to loom, 1 Peter is a a bit of a manual about how we live out the gospel in those days. Now these verses, verses 10 to 11, if you like mark in your Bible, which would be a wonderful thing for you to do, you ought to underline these verses and put a little note that basically says, this is the theme of the entire book of 1 Peter. In fact, if you want to boil down much of the content in 1 Peter. It's gonna be found right in these verses, in verses 10 and 11, because what Peter is trying to address is how to help a group of people who aren't experiencing state-sponsored persecution, but rather are experiencing sort of the shift in culture. How do they think about that world in which they live? And what 
Peter's going to do in this text is distill much of the teaching about suffering in the book of 1 Peter down into two very succinct verses. And here's essentially what Peter says in a sentence, that suffering works for us. Suffering works for the Christian, but in order for it to work, you have to understand suffering. You have to understand what it's like, what it means, and how to be able to endure. So I don't know where you are today. You could be having a, a wonderful life and not much, many problems happening. You could be in the throes of a very difficult season of life. Or maybe you have a friend who's walking through a hard season, and you're like, what do I say? Where do I, where do I point them? Well, this morning what I want to do is help you understand six truths from these two verses. Six truths to remember when you walk through suffering. And I hope no matter what your age or what your life experience, you'll listen carefully today because the fact of the matter is all of us need these truths. We either need to apply them to our own lives because we're hurting today, we need to apply them in someone else's life as we walk with them through a difficult season, or we may just need to think a little differently about our future because who knows what next week, what next month, or next year is going to bring. So here's some truths to remember about suffering. The first one is this. Suffering is expected. Verse 10 begins, and after you have suffered. So what we see here is at a very foundational level, just a mindset that we need to embrace, that we need to kind of get into our souls, and that is that suffering for a Christian is inevitable. Now, if this is the first time you've ever joined us, you might think, man, this is a depressing sermon. And I hope that isn't the case, and I hope this isn't the last sermon that you'll hear, because you need to know that what this message is about and what this text is about, it's not some sort of fatalism or some sort of, sort of depressing mindset. But what's awesome about this passage and what I love about the Bible is that it's straight up realistic. The fact of the matter is, as you've walked through life, you're going to experience difficulties and hardships. And if you haven't yet, you just haven't lived long enough. So if you're a teenager or if you're a young person, boy, I hope that you'll understand these truths because if you take these off to college with you, if you're graduating, take these off into your workplace this summer, or if you can get this into your soul, like baked into your thinking, before you turn 25, you'll be greatly helped. This text is written to a group of people who are not yet experiencing full-on persecution, but they're feeling the tension of a world that's becoming increasingly hostile. And Peter, over and over, reminds them that suffering is something that they ought to anticipate. Here's what he says in chapter 4 and verse 12. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. One of the reasons that we've studied this book is to help us to know that most Christians throughout the history of the church have experienced an exile. In fact, part of the reason that we jumped into this book was my concern that about, about 10 years ago, but very specifically about five years ago, I began noticing that, that, that many evangelical Christians did not know how to handle the separation of evangelical Christianity from American culture. They didn't know what to do with that, although that's how it has been for most of the history of the church. 
Jesus said the same thing in John 15. In one of his most personal and intimate conversations with his disciples, he said this, if you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. You see, the challenge is, though, that many of us, we became Christians with the wrong mindset. Some came to Christ believing that by receiving Jesus as their Savior, that you would not only be forgiven of your sins, but you would experience the life that you always dreamed of in this lifetime. You wanted the abundant life, so you signed on. Awesome! I get my sins forgiven and get to have the abundant life. I'm in. And then you experience suffering. You're like, whoa, wait a minute. Others need to understand this because you have a mindset that if you are a good Christian, if you were a better Christian, then there wouldn't be opposition or tension in your life. Sort of have this perfectionistic mindset that if I'm a really good Christian, then bad things won't happen. Or some of us have issues with fairness where you think I don't deserve this kind of unfair treatment. Or to be honest, some of us are just straight up self-centered. We're just annoyed that life is hard. It's a waste of my time to spend all this time wrestling with bad things that are happening. I don't want bad things to happen to me. So suffering and opposition, feeling like you're in exile, or that nagging sense that you get from your friends who aren't Christians that what you believe is just kind of weird. You need to know that's just, that's just part and parcel of what it's always meant to be a Christian. In fact, it ought to be weird when it isn't opposed. Incredibly helpful to reset our expectations. I, I found this to be true not only in Christianity, but I've, I found this to be true in lots of areas. For example, when my wife and I were getting premarital counseling and I first heard this truth that a Christian home is not a place where perfect people live, that a Christian home is a place where sinners live, but they know what to do about their sin. That was liberating because that meant that I didn't have to be a perfect husband. It didn't mean I have to have perfect kids. It meant that my expectation is we're going to have troubles. We're going to have problems. But the hope is we know what to do about our troubles. It's the same kind of hope I gave a husband and wife just yesterday morning. I was getting ready for a funeral and saw a family with twins, and as I often do, I go and just visit with them and say, I got twins, they're 20, you can make it. Yeah. <laughs> they were 18, years, uh, 18 months old, not 18 months, they were 18, year, months, 18 months old, <laughs> and um, you know, invariably I offer them a word of encouragement, and it goes like this. Um, Year four is awesome. And that's when they look at me like, what did you just say? And what I said is, yeah, the first four years are really, really hard. By the time that they, you can say to the kids, hey, get your shoes on, tie them, and get in the car and buckle your seatbelts, that's when you're really feeling like you could finally survive. Or I'll give you another illustration, maybe a little clearer. I was talking to a friend over the weekend, and we were talking about finding some time to go golfing this summer, and he said, ah, I'm not golfing anymore. And I said, you're not? I golf all the time. He's like, no, I'm not golf. I hate golf. I'm like, what are you talking about? You hate golf. He's like, I hate it. I hate it. I hate it. I hate it. And I said, oh, I know what the problem is. He's like, what? And I said, you went, you went golfing this last week, didn't you? I did. I said, see, that was the first problem. Here's the second problem. You're starting to think you're a golfer. <laughs> and he said, 
why? And I said, here's the problem. You walk on the course and you think, I'm a golfer, so I should be hitting straight shots, everything else. What you need to think, I own clubs. That's what you need to think. <laughs> and it changes how you see the game. I own clubs. Bad things are going to happen. And if that's, how, how, how did your golf game do to go, honey? Oh, it's great, just like I expected, right? All over the place. Saw a lot of land today, honey, on the course. So. What's, what's true in golf, what's true in raising children when they're twins, what's true in marriage is also true of Christianity. Friends, we need to reset our expectation as to what the normal Christian life looks like. We have to understand that God is holy, we're not. Jesus saved us, and Christ is our life. And we see everything through that lens, which means that hard is hard. The heart is not bad, and nor is it surprising. And I think it's helpful to think about life that way. So if you could just get in your mindset that suffering is to be expected, frankly, that, that's a huge step in the right direction. Peter says, after you have suffered. Here's the second thing that he says. He says, after you have suffered a little while. It's limited. Now, this truth is important, but it applies only to those who are in Christ. The text says, after you have suffered a little while. Later on, we'll see how this is connected to the relationship that we are to have with Jesus, but I'm, I'm here to tell you some bad news if you're not yet a follower of Jesus, and frankly, I wish I didn't have to tell you this, but the Bible is very clear, and that is this, that those who never deal with their sin and God's holiness, those who never submit to Christ, their suffering is not for a little while. In fact, it's for all eternity. I know how I wish that wasn't in the Bible, but it is in the Bible because God is that holy and we are that rebellious. And so as I talk about this for those who are in Christ, I hope to make some of you jealous that you would want to be in him because in this moment you know that your soul and your life and your eternal destiny are in jeopardy. For those who are in Jesus, though, there is this consistent promise within the scriptures that suffering is temporary. That's why Peter says, a little while. He's attempting to remind his readers and all of us that our experience of suffering and hardship is not unending, and it is not ultimate, and nor is it unlimited. Now this is not a promise that it's gonna end in your lifetime, but it is a promise that at the end of the day, it will not have the last word. Whatever our suffering or hardship is, the Bible promises that it, it will not ultimately win. The arc of God's redemptive plan sounds like this, creation, fall, redemption. Last one, restoration. Waiting for the moment when God will wipe away all tears from our eyes, when death shall be no more, when there'll be no more pain, no more crying. We're waiting for the day, according to 1 Corinthians 15, when God puts all things under the feet of Jesus, including death. And the Bible tells us these things so that we can have hope in this lifetime. That's why Hebrews 4 describes etern eternal life as rest. Because the resurrection of Jesus signaled not only his victory over sin and death, but also signaled that what happened to Jesus is going to happen to all those who know Christ as Savior. So no matter what happens, no matter how bad life gets, we know that at the end of the day, it is only going to be for a little while. 
So if you're here today and you're tired because of the brokenness of the world, tired because of the brokenness of the bad things that you see happening around you, we can rest in the hope that our suffering is not forever. Every Sunday morning, our elders are given a list of the most recent health issues and the pains within our congregation. Their pictures and what's happening. Every Sunday, just a reminder, I get tired of cancer. Hate the fact that a guy standing right over there last Sunday gave me a huge hug and then dropped dead on Tuesday. I'm tired of that. I'm weary of those things. And so where do, you, where do you go when your soul just gets weary from the brokenness of the world and the weight of all of the problems? You may be here today, and that's where you're at. You, you barely got here today. Like, you're just here, barely hanging on. You know what your hope is? Your hope is the same spirit that raised Jesus from the dead is one day going to raise you from the dead. And this is not the end of the story. This is not the final word. Death is not our ultimate victor, and the grave will not have the final say. For those who are in Christ, for those who are in Christ, suffering is not our future because Jesus bought the right to make this right. Third, not only is it limited, not only is it expected, third, grace is available. I love this. After you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, so what Peter does here is what is so important to do when we walk through suffering. He immediately goes from the, the, the what is happening to the who, who, who God is. He talks about the God of all grace. You see, there are a number of questions that you could ask as you're walking through suffering, and we would understand why we would ask questions like these. Questions like, what is going on? And why is this happening? And how am I going to make it? And those, those, those aren't necessarily bad questions unless those are the only questions that you ask. And if you ask them in the wrong order of importance, because the first question that you should ask, and the one question that you need to ask this morning, is not, why is this happening? What is going on? And how am I going to make it? The first question you need to ask yourself is this, who is in control? Peter goes from after you've suffered a while, the God of all grace, he points him upward. By the way, this is the same thing that happens in the book of Job. What's amazing about that book is, is it's the story of this godly righteous man who has his family and his possessions just wiped out. And it's all because Satan accuses God of not playing fair in the world. God says, have you considered my servant Job, how righteous he is? And Satan's like, righteous? Yeah, but you bless him. Take away his stuff and watch him curse your face. God's like, game on. Take away his stuff, see what happens. Job's faithful, Job's faithful, Job's faithful, all the way through. And then Job begins to ask God, why is this happening? What's happening? If I was God, I would say to him, Job, here's the deal. Like, you're righteous, and there's this thing between me and Satan that's going on. This is a test a test not only that you're in the middle of, but it's a test about my righteousness and Satan's evil. But God never tells Job that. He doesn't tell him why. Instead, he says, where were you when I formed the earth? Can you play with Leviathan in the sea? Can you hang the stars in the sky, Job? Can you do this? What is, 
God do? Instead of answering the why question, he points Job to the who question. And friends, here's why. Because the who question is far more satisfying than the why question. This text reminds us that the God of all grace, listen, you may never know in this lifetime why. You may not understand God's timing. And you may not even agree with the plan if you were to know about it. So where do you go for comfort in the middle of sorrow? Where do you point your friend in the midst of their struggle? You know where you point them? You point them to the God of all grace. I love it. God of all grace. You know what that means? It means that God is a God who helps people. Grace is what God gives people when he forgives them through Jesus. Ephesians 2 says, for by grace you've been saved through faith. It's a gift of God. Grace is what Peter says in chapter 5 and verse 5, God gives to the humble. Didn't you love that with our little second graders doing that? God resists the proud. I love that. Resists the proud. I, I'm, I'm never going to read this passage the same without seeing that. That's, it's, like a, it's like a Christian dab, you know? It's like, let's resist the proud, right? Resist, resist, resist the proud. God resists the proud. It's awesome. He gives grace to the humble. That's what happens. God resists people who are full of themselves. And here's part of the problem. You know what suffering does? Suffering reminds us that we can't make it on our own. You know what's so frightening about things that, that are hard is we can't control them. And some of you, where you'll go is you'll go to anger. And the reason you go to anger is because you want to take control. And the way you, you can't fix, like, physically, so you try and fix emotionally. And you throw the force of your emotions at that. And really what you're doing is you're trying to be the God of all grace, and you can't. Or the other end, you'll go to depression or denial or despair, and you'll just be like, it's over. It's worthless. No matter whatever I do, it doesn't. And what you'll do is you'll be angry in a different way. Instead, what Peter is saying here is in the midst of suffering, you've got to look up and say, God, you're the God of all grace. Grace is what God supplies. Grace is what God gives. Grace is what God promises that he'll give to us to fill in the gaps of our life. Sometimes those gaps are are created by circumstances that are beyond our control. Sometimes we create those own, our own gaps, even on purpose and for good reason. Let me give you an example of that. That's what giving does. That's what generosity does. Listen to 2 Corinthians 9 and verse 8. Paul says this, God is able to make all grace abound to you so that having all sufficiency in all things at all times, you may abound in every good work. So here's Here's the connection between giving and suffering. When you give on a regular basis, you know what you're doing? You are in effect saying, I'm gonna give and I'm gonna practice and train my heart to believe that God's grace is better than having things the way that I want them to be. You choose to reduce your checkbook for the purpose of saying, I think God's grace is better than standard accounting procedures. I know that when I give money away, I have less money, but when I give money away, I have more grace. And so what you do is you train your heart to believe in God's grace. And here's the deal, by giving and giving and giving, whether it's to this church or some other worthy cause, no matter what it is, what you're doing is you are training your heart on a regular basis, God's grace is valuable, God's grace is valuable, God's grace is valuable. And you do that on a weekly or a bi-weekly or a monthly basis, you are training your heart to say, God's grace, God's grace, God's grace, God's grace. And then when suffering comes, you've trained your heart to realize, oh, I'm just living on God's grace in a whole different way today. 
Some of you are in a dangerous position for enduring suffering because you've not trained your heart in God's grace. You can't handle a little problem. You can't give just even a small amount of your income away without freaking out. And then when a big piece of suffering comes your way, it's no wonder you have no idea how to think because you've not trained the heart to think that way. God of all grace, that's what Peter is saying. His grace is available ready to be poured out on those who are hurting, ready to be poured out on those who are trying to make it, and his grace also is ready to be poured out on those of you today who are not a believer yet. Well, I hope that you'll see that the Bible is so clear, you need God's help. And I don't know what it's gonna take, friend, for you to realize that you need his help. It may be a, a broken relationship, maybe some addiction that's got the best of you, or maybe just you thought this job was gonna be the thing and you got there and it's not, and you keep going from thing to thing to thing to thing, realizing that none of this actually fills the void in your soul. And you know why? Because only God can fill that void. You need God's grace, you need his help. And the first step is saying, I need help. And if you even have that thought, you need to know that's God by his spirit beginning to work in you. And I'd encourage you, respond to that. Don't let that go another day, another Sunday. Some of you are trying to help a fellow believer who's walking through a hard time in their life. How do you help them? You point them to God's grace. You remind them of God's grace. You remind them that God has an infinite store of grace ready to pour out on them. In fact, even this morning is a part of God's grace. Some of you who are hurting, you got up, thought I can barely even go to church today, and yet here you are, and here's what I'm saying, and my guess is even right now, you're sensing the beauty of God beginning to part, partly heal parts of your soul. He's pouring out grace. Number four, this text tells us there's a plan. Not only that grace is available, not only that it's to be expected suffering, not only that it's limited, but also there's a plan. The text says, who called you to his eternal glory in Christ Jesus. This, this statement is loaded with meaning. The word called is used throughout Peter and throughout the Bible, not just for calling, like I, like I called you and you heard me. No, the idea is like, you not only heard, but you responded and you came. God's call isn't like he sends you a message. God's calling means he sends you on a mission. It means you have been chosen and commissioned. It means that there's this, this calling that God has on your life. And, and it means that there's a, there's a trajectory of your life that you're on, and so that nothing in your life that's happened is happened by accident. This, this Sunday isn't by accident, this text isn't by accident, the songs we sang are by accident, the, the, the things that are happening inside of your life in terms of hardship and suffering, those aren't by accident. There's a plan because God who called you, and what does he call you to? The text says he calls you to his eternal glory. So notice that the trajectory of the calling doesn't terminate in this lifetime. God didn't call you to have an easy life. He didn't call you to have the American dream. He didn't call you to have the kind of marriage relationship you hoped you were gonna have. He didn't call you to have children obey every single time. He didn't call you to have a career that was so fulfilling. That's not the calling, and that's part of the problem. And part of the help of First Peter is it reminds us what our true calling is. And he says he's called you to his eternal glory. So the entire Christian life then is based upon this belief that there is a day coming when God is going to make everything right. His eternal glory, he is going to work out his plan towards that day of completion. And then here is 
I think, the most glorious thing in this phrase, but easy to overlook, it says, in Christ. This means that without him, there's no calling. Without him, there's no repentance. Without him, there's no mercy. Without him, there's no grace. It means that everything about God's plan in your life and in the world and for all of creation is all conditioned on the person and work of Jesus. That Jesus not only inaugurated the, the, the plan of God, but what's more, it means that the glory of Jesus in his followers, that's the plan. It's not just that he receives glory, we'll talk about that in a moment, but it is that the people that he redeems reflect that glory. So here's the deal, it means that in the new heaven and the new earth, Jesus is the focal point, and those who are his, who are in him, they look like him, they have been conformed to his image. Paul says that all things work together for good, all things work together for good in order to conform us to the image of Christ. That means that there's not a single thing that ever happens in your life that can thwart the plan of God forming and framing Christ-likeness in you. And the glory of the future new heaven and the new earth is that we behold the beauty of Jesus and we see him in all of his glory and we also look at ourselves and we can't believe it that we are actually like him and all the suffering and all the cancer and all the pain and all the criticism and all the opposition all work to form Christ likeness in us such that what he is we are for the glory of God and the fame of his name it's in Christ now listen, that becomes very liberating when you walk through suffering because here's what it means, friend. It means there is nothing that can thwart that plan. Nobody causes you to not be conformed to the image of Christ. And yet part of the challenge of suffering is that we have to embrace that. We have to say things like, God, like, I don't want you to use a bad marriage to make me like Jesus. Why do you have to use that? I don't, I don't want to have this wayward son or daughter to form me into the image of Jesus. I don't, I don't want to have criticism and opposition from people. And if God is the God of all grace, that means that he can be trusted with the plan of the formation of Christ's likeness in you. I don't know why, when I look at our prayer list, why? Why a woman gets pregnant only to find out she has cancer? I wouldn't do that. I don't like that. But I like something more. I like the hope of Christ being formed in her. I like the beauty of Jesus being exalted. And I like the power of what it means that human beings close their mouths when they say, why are you doing what you're doing? When Paul says, who's known the mind of the Lord? Who's ever given a gift to him that he'd be repaid? For from him and through him and to him are all things. So one of the key truths to remember in suffering is the basic concept that God has a plan to make me more like Jesus. And that plan is the essence of what it means to be a Christian and everything in life works for that end. Number five, we live on promise. So what I just said is incredibly true, but there's some of you who feel like your, your, your minds are like, thousands of miles away from agreeing with that or your heart feels like it's a million miles away from embracing that. So what do you do? 
This text says, the God of all grace who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ will himself, here comes the promise, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. So you believe that God is the God of all grace, and then you believe the promises that this is what he's going to do, both in the future and even now. The promise that is given here is ultimately fulfilled in the new heaven and the new earth, but even now we get partial fulfillment of this where God is in the process of restoring us, which means to mend what is broken and to make you complete, which means that even as I'm preaching this message, there's some of you who your hearts have moved from brokenness to less broken in 10 minutes, and God is moving in that direction. Even now, as you... In the service, as you sung, God's helped to bring some aspect of healing to your soul, and he's begun to restore or to confirm, which means to make you stronger and able to endure. You go through a season of suffering, it's amazing. God shows up and gives you the strength to make it. Some of you are in that position even today, and you, you might look at your life and say, Mark, I can, I, I can barely make it today. It doesn't, doesn't feel like I'm stronger. And here's what I would say to you. That may be true, but if five years earlier you were to know what you'd be walking through today, don't you think that you would look at that and think, there's no way I could do that. There's no, that's impossible. That would completely sink me. And yet here you are, and while you may not be clinging to Christ in a way that you think is as good as what it could be, the fact is you're still clinging to Christ, and I would argue in a way that you would have never thought you would have done five years earlier, if you had known. To restore, confirm, to strengthen means to, to increase your resolve, to increase your determination. The idea is this, that as you come through testing, that you see and behold beautiful things about God that you never would behold apart from suffering and hardship. And finally, to establish you, which makes you grow deeper in what you believe. Here's the ironic reality of suffering, which is that as you walk through it, it proves that what you believe is real. One of the most fearful things in walking through suffering in my own life, and there's been some significant moments, was wondering, is my faith really gonna hold? Walk through difficulty, and I think, what, what would happen if I were just to say, I don't believe this anymore, and walk away. And I can remember Sundays where I, about 10, 15 years ago, when I would be getting up to preach and think, God, I have zero strength, and I don't have enough faith to give out to people who are gonna hear me today. And I'd get up, and I'd preach, and the Lord would give me just enough grace. I'd go home, go to bed, wake up the next morning and there was grace again and grace again and grace again and I never ran out but I never had anything left over and that's the beauty of God's grace you live on his promise and what happens is he sustains you he holds you we already sang this we, we sang it this way when I fear my faith will fail Christ will hold me fast 
When the tempter would prevail, he will hold me fast. I could never keep my hold through life's fearful path, for my love is often cold. He must hold me fast. The beautiful hope in the midst of promise is this, that when you cling to Christ, he's already been clinging to you. When you've wrapped your arms around him, he already wrapped his arms around you. And so therefore, part of the key of learning how to think about suffering is to believe that when the trajectory of our life is completed, when God has finished his work in and through us, we will not only be completely restored, confirmed, strengthened, and established, but we will have learned and seen that God has been faithful every single day. For some of you, the action step you need to take today is simply to say, God, I believe, and help my unbelief. Finally, the text ends where all suffering ends in worship. I love this. Verse 11, it's awesome. To him, to him be the dominion forever and ever. So suffering ends ultimately in worship. So this, this final truth that we need to remember in suffering is how it is connected to worship. Here we have this beautiful doxology that exults in the sovereign dominion of God and in his eternal rule. As Jonathan Edwards says, this is the end for which God created the world. That the aim of creation, fall, redemption, and this restoration is to magnify the worth, the glory, and the dominion of God. And in this way, suffering then becomes a platform for worship. The beauty of God's plan is that every tear, every trial, every pain, even death itself, they're swallowed up in God's victory, and even the cross looked as if God had been defeated and God came along and flipped the enemy's plans such that everything God intended absolutely worked. Nothing can stop the divine plan from being completed. And yet here's what's unbelievable. People who love Jesus and people who love God's grace, they love the exaltation of God's name. They love, when it says, to him be the dominion forever and ever, there's something within the heart of a Christian that says, yes, that's what I love. They love the glory of God, they love the worth of God, and they love the worth of God even if it means hardship and pain and difficulty. Oh, there are some days when it's easier to love those, the glory and the dominion of God than others. But at the end of the day, think of it, friend, if you're a follower of Jesus, you love something you would have never loved apart from God's help. Things I'm saying even now make sense to you. They resonate with your, in your heart, and they don't do so because innately you would agree with them. It's because God has captured your heart. He's, he's made you love something you would have never loved before. God's glory was something you ran from. In fact, sin is the rejection of God's glory and salvation is now you live for God's glory and to hear to him be the dominion from now and forevermore is this beautiful truth that ends by reminding us what is ultimately valuable and what is ultimately worthwhile and the fact that you would love that and cherish that in any way whatsoever, even in its incompleteness, is a sign and a symbol of God's care and his grace to you. So I don't know where you are this morning or where the circumstances of your life have lined up such that you're here today. But what I do know is this, that when the dark clouds of suffering loom, there are six things that we need to be reminded about. 
that suffering is expected, that it's limited, that there's grace, there's a plan, we can live on promise, and that it ultimately ends in worship, such that all of life and all of suffering can be captured with the beautiful doxology of to him be the dominion forever and ever. That's how you make it through suffering. Father in heaven, I pray that you would pour out grace upon those this morning who find themselves in a difficult position of sorrow and struggle. Pray that you would hold them fast. Pray, God, that you would increase their ability today even to make it through this next week. And Lord, there are also things that in your sovereign plan that you have in store for people in this room that they don't even know about today and that you're already storing up grace ready for them. And thank you that we, ought, we don't need to live in fear or despair because of that, but we can trust knowing that you're going to help us as you always have. So God, we thank you that the community of faith gives us strength, that in this very moment there's strength that we get by being together. So we pray that you, by your Spirit, would help us today to care for and strengthen each other to hold fast and never give up. But more than anything, thank you that you are the one who holds us fast. So come now, Lord Jesus, and help us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.